praise Jesus for uh, Amy's profession of him uh, and praise God for how he's been at work uh, through the English as a Second Language ministry uh, for years uh, in the life of this church and in this community. And so we praise uh, God just for that and the opportunity we get to be a part of it. And uh, for those of you who uh, may not have been aware, this past week we had our Bayshore Kids Clubs, which took place throughout the community. And there were 190 children uh, that participated in the various uh, Bayshore Kids Clubs. And uh, I just uh, Praise God uh, for the seeds of the gospel that are planted and just want to say thank you to those who volunteered and served uh, with these kids in the community uh, in the heat. Uh, so thank you so much and we're just grateful for all the ways that God is at work in the life of this church. And if you're here today and you're visiting with us, uh, then we would love for you to be a part of what God is doing. Uh, we can, uh, you can stop by one of the welcome areas on your way off campus this morning or you can text the word connect to the number that is on the screen. And one of our uh, Connect team members will follow up with you this week and answer any questions you have and help you learn how you can be a part of what God is doing here. Uh, for those of you who are part of our church, you know that we cooperate with uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. And this past week, the convention met uh, in Anaheim, California, and I was there. And uh, we have uh, a podcast at our church called Boggy Talk, and it airs, episodes of it air every Tuesday. And that's what we'll be devoting the next two weeks uh, to, uh, is talking about what took place this year and kind of my thoughts on it. So uh, I would encourage you, you could go to our website or you can follow us on social media. Uh, the, the podcast is on iTunes and, you, and YouTube as well. Uh, but if you're interested in knowing a little more about what's going on and what we should think about that, then I would encourage you to check that out. But this morning, if you would open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, as we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we head into chapter 13 and the, the theme or the tone of uh, the Gospel of Mark shifts where Jesus has been interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees and talking about really the problems of the religion of that day, he begins to talk about uh, the last days or things to come. Now, it's important to note as we read Mark chapter 13 over the next several weeks that all of the Bible is equally true, but not all of the Bible is equally clear. So all the Bible is equally true, but it's not all equally clear, and it's made less clear by bad exegesis. So here's what I mean by that. By people who impose views uh, on the Bible or don't just study the Bible the way that they should and then teach those views or teach without really you know, observing it the way that they should, and then that begins to cloud our judgment as we read the Bible in the future because we've heard bad teaching of the Bible. Alan Stibbs, who's a professor at Oak Hill Theological College, says this, do not try to satisfy an unhealthy curiosity. It is a serious misuse of scripture to try to make it disclose more than God has purposed to reveal. So over the next six weeks, we're gonna look at Mark 13 and talk about what it teaches and compare it with some other text. We're not going to get into a ton of speculation. So if you're one of those blood moon people, this might frustrate you a little bit. Uh, but if you're one of those, hey, what did Jesus say, people? I think that through looking at Mark chapter 13, we will see really some of the things he has clearly said and how great he clearly is. So over the next six weeks, we're gonna see five things that we should know about the end of the world. I'm gonna give those to you now. Five things that we should know about the end of the world. The first is this. The world 
does not revolve around a place. It revolves around a person. The world does not revolve around a place. It revolves around a person. And we'll talk more about that today. Secondly, in this world, you will have trouble. But don't fear, Jesus has overcome the world. When we think about the last days and the word tribulation and trials comes to mind, here's what I would say very clearly. Believer, you will have trouble in this world. But don't fear, Jesus has overcome the world. Third, nothing can or will stop God's purpose for the world. Nothing can or will stop God's purpose for the world. So again, there's a lot of uncertainty and even some of the certainty are things that might be a little terrifying to us. But nothing can or will stop God's purpose for the world. Fourth, Jesus' return for his church will be obvious to all the world. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be obvious to everyone. And then lastly, then and there, so that's, you know, when is that gonna happen and there, where it's gonna happen, whatever that is, should lead the Christian to here and now, not when and where. So the then and there of the last days should lead us to live here and now the way Christ has called us to and not to focus more on when and where is that going to happen. In the Baptist Faith and Message, the Baptist Faith and Message is a uh, booklet that summarizes essential teachings of the scriptures. In Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message, it reads this. God, in his own time, in his own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous and the resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. So what this is, is a pretty succinct a description of what we believe about the last days or the end times. And obviously, if you've read the Bible, there's a lot more that people believe about those days and the end times. But the purpose of this article in the Baptist Faith and Message is to say, is if we can agree on this, then we can cooperate together for the mission of God. But again, there's a lot of other things that are spoken about, and they're not necessarily that clear. All of the Bible is equally true, but not all of the Bible is equally clear. And so what we need to do when we read what we're reading over the next few weeks is we need to put bifocals on. We need to look through the lens of what is happening near, so what is happening soon after the time of Jesus, and what is happening in the far. And we should always ask, what matters to me right now? And today what is very clear is that the world does not revolve around a place, it revolves around a person. Let's look at Mark chapter 13, verse one through four. It says, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Father, help us 
to hear your word and obey your word and to give you glory from our time in the word this morning. May you decrease, I mean, may you increase, may I decrease. May we all in our hearts be humble before you and want your will and your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as the disciples and Jesus leave Jerusalem on their way to Bethany, they pass, uh, they pause on the Mount of Olives. When you look out from that point on the Mount of Olives now, across the Kidron Valley, you see the Muslim structure, the Dome of the Rock. But on this occasion, at this time, they would have seen the temple. And the temple and the buildings of the temple were quite astounding. For these Galileans, it wasn't an everyday sight. I remember whenever I, uh, we, my children were younger, I was preaching at a church in Tallahassee one Sunday, and so we went, drove into Tallahassee Saturday night, and as we drove into downtown Tallahassee, one of my children said, it's New York City! And I was thinking, oh my goodness, I am raising some country bumpkins that they think that Tallahassee is New York City. And so when you're not used to seeing these, you know, magnificent buildings, these impressive structures, then it can certainly be something you would marvel at. But this didn't mean that these Galileans were bumpkins or small town boys. It was actually legitimate that anyone looking on the temple in this day would have been captivated. There was actually a rabbinic saying that said, whoever has not beheld Herod's building has not seen anything beautiful in this life. The highest walls of the structure were 165 feet high. There were stones that were 40 feet by 12 feet by 18 feet. Slabs of the temple weighed 200,000 pounds. It was bathed in gold, which would lead people to write that you had to shield your eyes when you looked at it in the sun. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that as you approached the city, it looked like you were approaching a snow-capped mountain. And so Jesus shocks his disciples when he says, you see all these wonderful stones and wonderful buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now the temple was significant for God's people. The temple represented God's gracious presence with his people. The temple represented God's gracious presence with his people. God had instructed Moses to build an Ark of the Covenant, and the people of Israel carried that Ark of the Covenant around with them in the tabernacle, which they carried around with them for their time in the wilderness, representing God's presence with his people. And so whenever they set up in Israel, throughout Israel, throughout the land of Israel, there were different sanctuaries devoted to worship of God. Well, David, who would be king, felt led uh, to build a temple in Jerusalem devoted to worship of God, which would house the Ark of the Covenant and which would become the permanent tabernacle. And Solomon was the one who would eventually, you know, have that constructed. It was built on uh, Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham was said to make his covenant uh, with God. And so throughout Israel, there would be the temple and there would be other altars devoted to worship of God, sanctuaries set up to be worship of God. And it would become a point of tension. Uh, Some believed that there should just be the temple. Some thought it was okay to be these altars. In fact, the Samaritans believed that you should worship elsewhere other than the temple. And so they were, you know, a faction off of Israel uh, devoted to this. Well, around 600 BC, the Babylonians uh, destroyed the temple. And uh, around 100 years later, uh, under the Persians, uh, the rule of the Persians, the temple would be rebuilt, but it would be a shell of the original temple. And 
the Israel's not being free, being under pagan rule, had various corruption of the temple throughout this period of time. Ultimately, in uh, around 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek ruler, uh, desecrated the temple. So then Herod comes to rule over Judea, where Jerusalem is, under you know, Roman rule. And Herod, as a political move, but also kind of to build on his legacy, has the temple rebuilt. And the desire was to build the temple greater than the first temple. And at the time of Jesus, uh, it wasn't even finished being built. It would be built a few more years, uh, at, or completed a few more years after this. The temple, though, at the time of Jesus, under construction still, was the center of life for Jerusalem and for Israel. It was political in nature. It was, uh, there was tourism and industry that took place there, and it was the religious center. You could say that it was like Disney World, the White House, and the Vatican all rolled into one. And so when Jesus says that there's not gonna be a stone here that isn't overturned, you can understand why that would be something significant. Now, when Jesus says this, we need to understand that this is in the context of his time just spent in the temple where he essentially is rebuking the religion that exists in the temple of this day, the corruption that is taking place, the commercialism that exists in the temple. You see, the temple wasn't serving God's purpose. The temple wasn't serving God's purpose, but its purpose was never its permanence. The temple wasn't serving God's purpose, but its purpose was never its purpose, permanence. God had spoken clearly about this in the Old Testament through the prophets. One clear passage dealing with this is found in Jeremiah. I'll read Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So some several hundred years before the time of Jesus, the Old Testament had told us about this day when God would make a new covenant, a new covenant that wasn't built around the temple, that wasn't built around the sacrifices, but a covenant that God would make when he would dwell with the people himself. And yet, even though not just Jeremiah, many places in the Old Testament talked about this, the people missed it because of their being captivated by the religious system and by the religious structures. And it's hard to believe that the disciples were even understanding what Jesus was saying because they missed so much related to this. I think it's probably, probably that they were just preoccupied with, okay, if, if God's gonna do this, when is this gonna happen? Because it's far more intriguing to ask questions about 
when to understand the significance of why. And I think that's one of the great distractions of people of the faith is to focus more on the when and the how than the why. John Calvin says of the disciples, the vast size and wealth of the temple hung like a veil before the eyes of the disciples, preventing them from elevating their faith to the true reign of Christ. So yes, the religious crowd is missing it, but also the disciples are missing it. But Jesus did not miss it. Jesus understood the purpose of the temple. When he goes to the temple when he's 12 years old, he's participating in the purpose of the temple. But understanding the purpose of the temple, Jesus understood what was going to take place. And he understood that the time of the temple was coming to an end. If you look further in Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 31, tell us that Jesus says this. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, which we'll talk about those things over the next several weeks, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is saying, everything that we see is going to pass away. The things of this world, even the best, most incredible, marvelous things will pass away, but God's word will not. The temple falls under that purpose of God, that only God's word is what will last. And so connected with Jesus's deconstruction here, if I can use that word, is the ultimate purpose of God and for his desire for people to see the purpose of God. What Jesus is saying is that a temple building might be destroyed, but the temple of God will never be destroyed. And so a, a building that represents the temple might be destroyed, but the temple of God will never be destroyed. You see, God doesn't need a building to accomplish his purpose. In fact, his purpose extends far beyond that. When Paul's declaring the gospel to uh, the, those at Mars Hill who are very religious and, and very focused on buildings and very focused on altars and idol, idols and all these things, this is what he says, Acts 17, verse 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, God's intention was to dwell in people, not in a building. And we tend to begin to restrict God in our minds or confine God to a building or a special place when God made everything that we see. And God's desire is to have relationship with us. And so that's what's happening in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are the temple of God. If you are in Christ, you are where God dwells. You are the temple of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, to the believers who are gathered there, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And so the focus of the New Testament is on God's fulfillment of his covenant to dwell in us and with us. And so when we begin to focus then on 
this building, we're losing sight of God's purpose. James Brooks, who's a New Testament scholar, says this, the temple was certainly obsolete for the Gentile Christians to whom Mark wrote. It was more than obsolete. It was dangerous because continuation of a sacrificial system undermined the finality of Jesus' sacrifice. So what I'm suggesting to you is that this isn't semantics, but that when we believe that there needs to be a temple for God to get glory, what you are doing is you are diminishing the glory of Christ and you are diminishing the work of Christ. And historically, Christians have not thought that there needed to be a temple until uh, around 1940 A.D., so Christian, this, this idea that we think the temple needs to be rebuilt as Christians is a relatively modern concept. I ask you to turn to the book of Hebrews. If you're new to the Bible, it's just a few uh, books later, and we will have the verses on the screen, a few letters later. Hebrews chapter 10. And the author of Hebrews chapter 10 explains to us why our focus is not on a building and what Christ really did for us. Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm gonna read verse one through 18. The author says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's saying, the sacrifices never actually made atonement for the sin. They just reminded us that we needed atonement for our sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified to the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What was repeatedly done that wasn't sufficient but reminded us of our need was done once for Christ and met our need and is all sufficient. And the Holy Spirit is the seal that God, of God's spirit that he is dwelling with us, that we are his temple. And so our focus of our faith is on what Christ has done for us, making us his for all of eternity. Our destiny is not a physical location. It is our permanent holiness. James Montgomery Boyce. Our destiny is not a physical place. It is our permanent holiness. And we must avoid the temptation for our faith and our religion to be focused on a building or a location or a pilgrimage or something else like that. Because we now live in the time of the new covenant where Christ has come once for all, where God dwells with his people and they are the temple of God and the spirit empowers us to do the will of, the, of God. You see, today, people don't go to the temple. There isn't one. And there hasn't been one for almost 2,000 years. They don't have a priest they don't have a sacrifice. They don't go there for holy days because it's over. Or should I say, it is finished. The temple, the priest, the sacrifices for sin, that has not existed since AD 70. It is finished. And we are not anticipating the revival of Judaism. Why? Because we don't need it. We don't need the temple, we don't need the priest, we don't need the sacrifices. And so we can go to Jerusalem and we can look at the places that the Bible records and we could even make temples if we're going to, but none of that brings us any closer to God. We don't go to places to be with God because God has come to be with us. God is with us and our faith is not about a place, it is about a person. And the purpose of the place was to prepare people for the coming of the person. And God wanted us to get that, and so he let it be destroyed. And this signal, not the end of Judaism, but the fulfillment of Judaism. You see, it isn't the Judaism of the Old Testament and the Christianity of the New Testament. We're not people who are anti-Judaism. We understand that Jesus himself was Jewish, we love people who, who say that they're Jewish still, but we worship Jesus who was Jewish as God. So yes, we love Jerusalem. Yes, we love Israel, but we want the gospel to spread there. We do not believe that the Jewish people who reject Jesus worship the same God as us because the center of their faith is a place and the center of our faith is a person. They are worshiping a shadow and we are worshiping the light. We don't need to go to Jerusalem. We don't need to go to Mecca. We don't need to go to a building or anywhere to be closer to God because we have Jesus. He has come to us. He is our holy of holies. He is our great high priest. He is the lamb of God and you cannot be any closer to God than Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, verse six, it tells us that Jesus said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here.
Something greater than a place that was designated to represent God's presence with people is here. God is present with people. He has become flesh. Emmanuel, God is with us. That is who Christ is. And it breaks my heart that there are people who think that they need to go to a priest and confess their sins to this priest and that that priest who's, who's set apart will somehow make them right with God. And it breaks my heart that there are people that think they have to go into a certain type of building to experience God. And it breaks my heart that there are people that think if they don't make a pilgrimage to a certain place in the world that they won't experience God. And I have nothing against people who believe this, but I have something for people who believe in this. First Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus. There is one go-between. There is one access. There is one who brings us close to God, and it is Christ Jesus. We do have guilt from our sins, and our sins have been atoned for on the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we trust in him, we will see that it's not we have to go somewhere to experience God, but God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He will always be with us. James Brooks says the temple was no longer the focus of hope. The focus of Christian hope is the cross of Jesus Christ. If we have a symbol, that's our symbol. It's the cross. The cross reminding us that a sacrifice has been made once for all for us. And we have an empty cross because Christ came down from the cross. He was buried, he was put in the grave and there's an empty tomb representing that Jesus is alive. And that is the focus of our faith. So when we think about the last days and whatever that might be, it's not about a place, it's about a person. So when we think about the day, it's not about a place, it's about a person. And when we see the Bible through the lens of the cross, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we understand what God is saying to us. Jesus told us that we were the city on a hill. You see, it was Jerusalem on the hill that represented the hope that people could have. It was a reminder, a visual reminder, and Jesus says to his church, you are that representation of hope. You are that reminder to the world of the fact that God is with us. And so we are then to carry the gospel message wherever we go. We're the temple of God on display, the glory of God on display, and may that glory shine in and through us today. Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you have come once and for all, that you have sacrificed for us and you sat down. You don't have to keep going through the motions because what you did was sufficient and it was perfect. And Lord, I pray that we as believers would recognize that in Christ we have all things. And that it's not experiences, it's not places that make us closer to God, it's, it's Christ. And so we don't wake up begging for the forgiveness of sins, we wake up grateful for the forgiveness of sins. And we respond with lives of surrender and service because of the one who gave all for us. That's our worship. It's just focused on you and how great you are. And if there's somebody here today and maybe they're even a religious person, but the truth is they still feel this guilt and this need for the motions, this need for things, and, 
and they haven't experienced the freedom that comes from Christ. And today, I pray that they would call out to you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God, they would believe in the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ. And they would be buried with Christ just as our sister visually represented and raised to walk in a new life where God's spirit dwells with them. And may we as the people of God realize the spirit of God is in us and working in and through us. And so may we live like that. And so Lord, as we come to you in response right now, I just pray that we would just ask for your Holy Spirit. I ask for your Holy Spirit to just glorify Christ that he might be exalted. And certainly, if Christ is to be exalted over all religious structures and religious things, then he's to be exalted over all areas of our life. And so may we humble ourselves before you and ask God, what would you have of me today? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.